This episode is brought to you by Lafayette Coney Island on behalf of glizzy gladiators everywhere. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. I'm your host, Jameson Draper, with my co-host, Max Miller, and it's been a minute, Max. How you doing today, man? Oh, I'm great. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, man, it's, it's been a while. We have uh, we may or may not have been slacking or just in a bowling league, so you know... It's, yeah, it's, it's taken up a lot of our time. Very important stuff. But anyway, so what uh, what are we drinking today, man? Yeah, today we are drinking George Dickel Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey 12. And you may notice, this is not a Detroit whiskey. And why is that, Max? So it's from Tennessee. It's Tennessee whiskey, and the reason we're doing that is because our soul that we are speaking of today is from Tennessee, but she is a Detroit legend nonetheless. Yep, today we're going to be talking about Aretha Franklin. Uh, This is one of the Lost Souls episodes that we've done so far that I think, you know, a lot of our episodes have been about people that you may have heard of but not know a lot about. Um, Or we've done ones like this one or the Kwame episode where it's somebody that people are very familiar with but they might not know the extent of the stories. Because I'll say something to you before we start, man. I don't know how you feel about this, but I thought I was super acquainted with Aretha Franklin. Until I did the actual research and I started looking into it and there is a ton of stuff about her that I really, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know much more than her music, her impact, you know, the fact she's from Detroit, great singer. She died relatively recently. But other than that, I mean, some of the stuff we're going to get into today is pretty freaking cool. All right, man. Well, before we get started, let's pop open this uh, dickle. Yeah. All right. Some George (laughs) Dickel. Yeah, I guess we'll keep that. All right. <laughs> cut! Cut! <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, man. Cheers. Cheers. All right, so this isn't a bourbon, so it's going to be whiskey. It's pretty good. I don't really know anything about Dickel. No, this is good. I mean, it tastes like a Tennessee whiskey. It's uh, very much tastes like the price of mid $20. And you know what? I have no incentive to talk good about this whiskey because it's not a, a hometown or a home yeah, state. Yeah, exactly. It's whiskey. not Detroit. It's not bourbon, which is what I like. I'm it's, not Jonesy it's a for whiskey. the sponsorship, you know? Like, yeah, like exactly. Still waiting on the response from you, Unless, two James. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Coppercraft. <laughs> or <Are> anyone. <laughs> unless, unless you want to sponsor us, George Dickel. But I, need I mean, him. we'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take yeah. it. But it's good. It uh, reminds me a little bit of Jack Daniels, which I have some rough high school memories of. Um... So that's not fun, yeah. but it's tasty. It's doing it dirty. It's not, that, it's not as bad as Jack No, it's not. Not at all. But let's get started, man. So first we're going to go and talk about her, her early life and then kind of move on throughout her whole career. So Aretha Louise Franklin was born March 25th, 1942 at 406 Lucy Avenue in South Memphis, Tennessee to parents Barbara and Clarence, better known as C.L. Franklin. She was delivered in the home, which was definitely a relic of that time. Uh, But due to her father's infidelity, she had a tumultuous childhood. Her parents split when she was six years old, and then she went to live with her dad in Detroit while her mom moved to Buffalo. Her dad was a reverend uh, at that point who already had some notoriety, and he got a job at the burgeoning New Bethel Baptist Church uh, on Hastings Street in Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, which I'm sure we'll do an episode about someday. But the Black Bottom, you know, was a big, prosperous black community uh, near the downtown area of Detroit. That was essentially raised to make way for I-375 during the construction of highways. So the fact that he came to New Bethel Baptist Church and was in on Hastings Street in Black Bottom means they were just kind of thrown right into to the thick of things, everything going on in Detroit in the late 40s, early 1950s. 
Yeah, interestingly about Black Bottom, you know, whenever you hear about the projects, for example, you kind of think that it's like the worst area of Detroit, but or the worst area of any city. But it was interesting, I was reading something I think you sent me, um, talking about how Black Bottom was kind of like the the rough area where nobody really cared about the people who lived there, and the projects were kind of more up-and-comers. The projects were sought after. I can, I can attest to that on a, on a personal level. My grandma, who is white, you might be surprised to learn, uh, lived in the projects while growing up on the east side of Detroit. She lived in the Chandler Park projects in the, you know, she was born in like 1938. And she always says, you know, when she was a kid, like that was like the best place she lived when she was a kid. It was prosperous. It was, it was, you know, nice upkeep. I mean, it was a big initiative. I think the, the, the projects, like the idea of projects, I, I can't be sure here, but they were initiated by the, in the Roosevelt administration, like FDR administration. And it was like a big social leap forward hmm. at the time. But nonetheless, uh, she lived in Black Bottom uh, when she first moved here. But as time went on, uh, her dad got richer and, and more famous, and she moved onto LaSalle Street, which is in or near the Boston Edison neighborhood, which those of you from Detroit know is and has always been a swanky neighborhood. It was originally created uh, for like the auto magnets of the Industrial Revolution to live a life, a lavish life. They're giant houses. Um, and she lived in one of the really nice houses on LaSalle Street. And she grew up there, and actually she, she owned that house until she passed, which we'll talk about later, but it's really interesting. Uh, but it's impossible, literally impossible, to speak about Aretha Franklin without speaking about her father, C.L. Franklin. I mentioned that he was a reverend of some notoriety, but uh, that does not do it justice. C.L. Franklin's emotional and passionate sermons uh, that he gave in the 1940s and 1950s brought him nationwide notoriety in the black community, especially during the dawn of the civil rights movement. He became the pastor to go see in Detroit, you know, a city with a burgeoning and influential black population when icons of the civil rights movement like Sam Cooke or even Martin Luther King came to town. That's where they went. New Bethel listened to C.L. Franklin's sermons. Um, They stayed at C.L. Franklin's house. Uh, I mean, this means Aretha was growing up around these massive figures in America at the time. Uh, He actually met with MLK to do the Freedom March together, MLK's Detroit Freedom March in uh, 1963, June 1963. He did the march, stood right next to C.L. Franklin. We'll post a picture on our Instagram, um, but there's literally a picture picture. of of C.L. Franklin and, and just so clear, standing right next to MLK. And if that doesn't really do... Justice as to explaining how big he was. I don't. I don't know what would. Right. I mean, that's that's pretty momentous. Mm-hmm. But New Bethel was kind of at this point. It was a pillar of of the black community. Um, at at first, we'll talk about this. But once once uh, Black Bottom was raised for I three seventy five, New Bethel stayed alive. They just moved to a new location on Twelfth Street, which is now Rosa Parks Boulevard, uh, which is like near West Side, pretty close to Boston Edison. Actually, but some I just wanted to go through a few like amazing New Bethel Baptist Church moments as if talking about MLK wasn't enough. There are some other like really cool things that happened there. Um, November 1965, MLK's wife, Coretta Scott King, delivered the keynote address of the annual Women's Day services at New Bethel. Um, October 1966, MLK delivered a speech there at the annual Men's Day dinner. November 1966, famous civil rights activist James Meredith, five months after being shot during his March Against Fear rally in Mississippi, spoke at a rally at New Bethel. And in January 1974, actually, in the later years of the church, well, the church is still around today, but in the later years of C.L. Franklin's reign as uh, the, the pastor at the church, two gunshots were fired into the church during a service conducted by Reverend Franklin, and two attendees were injured. Wow. So... 
a lot of a lot of activity happened at this church inside and out of the confines of its walls. Uh, and it's it's really anybody that's in Detroit, uh, part of the community, is is pretty familiar with with New Bethel Baptist Church. It's still around today. They're only like. There's only been like two or three pastors since C.L. Franklin. So, jeez, yeah. So it's it's only been like it opened in like the 40s, and I think there's only been like five pastors ever. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool. But uh, C.L. Franklin was an icon beyond just his sermons. Um, you know, he did a lot of his vintage whooping style uh, that you can listen to. It's recorded. It's 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 out there. Uh, kind of influenced not just pastors and and their sermons at the time, but ended up being a really big influence in. In soul music and in R and B music at the time, like you listen to James Brown from the '60s, and you can tell that he got some of his flavor from maybe not directly C. L. Franklin, but that style which C. L. Franklin is is famous for making popular. So he was really influential across arts, across religion, and in the community. Yeah, soul kind of came about as as a combination of gospel and blues, right? I was reading a little bit about that. I think that's really kind of where soul came from. And Aretha Franklin herself, the queen of soul, really got her her footing as kind of stepping out of the the gospel, but not really going as sacrilegious or as blasphemous as blues oh, as yeah. some people thought. So that's kind of the origin of soul. I mean, she would say at the beginning of her career, she was a gospel singer. She wasn't a soul singer. I mean, she became the queen of soul and she embodied soul, but she thought of herself, at least at that time, as, as, a, as a gospel singer. But yeah, C.L. Franklin was very popular. In the 1950s, he would earn $4,000 per public appearance. For reference, in, the 19, in 1956, after coming out with the song Blue Suede Shoes, Elvis demanded $7,500 in appearance. I mean, that means C.L. Franklin made 40 k plus for just a walkthrough. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, he was really important. Um, I mean, I know money's not everything, but he dictated a lot of money for his sermons. He had a lot of pull in the community, and a huge motif of his style was the idea that you are somebody, and the idea was to take a backseat to no one, which was really important and really resonated, I think, with a lot of his the churchgoers and his listeners at the time, based on, even, it probably would today as well, but even if you contextualize it in that time, it makes sense why he rose to fame and, and power so quickly. We'll talk a little bit more about C.L. Franklin, but his life actually came to a tragic end. Well after Aretha got famous, he didn't stop preaching. Uh, He stayed giving sermons and was the pastor at New Bethel all the way up until he was shot and ultimately murdered. Uh, In 1979, two armed men broke into his home, Aretha's childhood home on LaSalle Street, which at this point... Uh, it was not the neighborhood it once was. Detroit was at, at taking a nosedive post the 1967 riots. Uh, yeah, he they broke into his house and they shot him two times at point blank range. He was in a coma for five years and eventually died in 1984. He was in a coma for five years? Yeah, actually, we'll learn this later too. I'll talk about it. But Aretha actually moved back to Detroit in, the, in like 1982 to take care of him. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, he was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery on Woodward between 7 and 8 Mile, uh, one of the biggest cemeteries in the city. And uh, New Bethel uh, Baptist Church, which was actually, I, I did just say earlier it was on 12th Street. That's actually where the neighborhood thoroughfare was. The, the actual church was on Linwood, which is a, like two blocks west. of. It's, it's, it's the same thing as like... Is two blocks away from from Twelfth Street, so that's that stretch of Linwood where New Bethel is is actually renamed uh, Reverend C. L. Franklin Boulevard. If you dry it, oh, on that's it now. awesome. So yeah, so there's uh, they honor him in a, in a lot of ways. So it's cool. But 
In terms of C.L. Franklin, uh, I mean, it, it's so clear to see that he was the most important influence in her life. C.L., if you listen, I, I urge you, man, to go listen to one of his sermons. I'm not a religious guy, but you listen to his sermons, and he speaks with so much raw soul and power and persuasion, and he influenced her style. You know, she was always kind of known as having this regal aura and aesthetic, you know, kind of giving her that nickname, the Queen of Soul. She always carried herself with grace and pageantry, and her father really wasn't much different. In fact, he was probably the inspiration for this. Um, in a time where modesty was, you know, ruled and, and was king in that era of America, C.L. Franklin wore tailor suits and alligator shoes and diamond stick pins. He rode in a late model Cadillac that was driven by one of his deacons, and I gotta be honest, man, that's pretty damn Detroit yeah. to me. I mean, that that's sounds like a Detroit pastor, so it's really cool to hear that he was kind of one of like... You know, and, and, and that goes along with this whole ideal that you are somebody, you know. He was convinced, I am someone. This is what I'm doing. I, I, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just kind of showing out a little bit. And there's this cool anecdote where he was down south. Uh, his deacon was driving him around in his Cadillac, as he was wont to do. And his caddy broke down in, in one of these cities. And a group of tough white racists reportedly circled him, calling him a boy and teasing him. According to his biography, uh, C.L. Franklin's biography, Singing in a Strange Land, instead of responding, C.L. Franklin just walked through the crowd to a nearby auto dealership and bought a brand new Cadillac in cash on the spot. That's an awesome story. If that's true, that's great. I mean, it it might be unfounded, um, but there's a good chance today he'd probably be known as like a money-grubbing pastor uh, that was cared about his showmanship and his image, but that's unfounded. Um, His image and his message were very purposeful right he did all this to to push that message that he was preaching and you know they kind of worked in accordance with each other but um and that is actually what you were saying about how aretha started to sing soul and the blues after she moved on from gospel and you know you would think that maybe somebody that's a man of god and as religious as cl franklin would not especially in the 1950s or early 1960s wouldn't want her singing the devil's music or whatever but he totally supported Aretha moving away from gospel into R&B. For one, he knew that she was gifted and that was the route to massive success. And also, he said in many interviews that he truly believed she would carry the spirit of the church into any genre she chose, which I feel like he was right about. I mean, Aretha's music is spiritual, whether it's it's tied to religion or not. So this, this begs the question, man, is Aretha a nepotism baby? It's as much as I respect her. It's hard. It's hard to say no to well, that. You, you know, man. I, I don't think a nepotism baby is necessarily a bad thing. Or we're living, in, you know, Zoe Kravitz is mm-hmm. doing amazing. True. Right now, the Batman is great. She's a mm-hmm. nepotism baby. Or um, Euphoria, Maude Apatow, Judd Apatow's yes. daughter. Yes. Now, if you're good at what Rashida you do, Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones. I love her. You know, Tracy Ellis Ross. Yeah. So yeah. okay, I'm, I, I could keep going, but my point is, if you're good at what you do, it's not necessarily the wrong thing to be a nepotism baby. It's just funny to contextualize sexualize Aretha in that way because nobody thought of her that way. But I mean, the who's who of black America in the late 1950s were an integral part of her life. Mahalia Jackson would cook collard greens at their house. Sam Cooke would come over and like play with Aretha's hair. She was performing and recording by the age of 12 with some of the most important influential pop artists of that time and of all time. I mean, it, 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 no matter how you look at it, she was a nepotism baby, and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to have that bad connotation, but she got a lot of these opportunities and eyes on her because of her dad and who he was. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, for all this time we're spending, you know, showering praise upon C.L. Franklin, he was not a man without his transgressions. 
uh, as a public figure and, and somewhat of an honestly a pop icon of his own at the time. He had a dark side. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, he was the reason that the family broke up. He had a lot of issues with infidelities, infidelity. Um, there were rumors of heavy drinking and drug use, uh, which I don't know how founded they are, but that corridor of Linwood and 12th Street in Detroit at the time was had a lot of clubs and people remember... People remember churchgoers staying out all night and then just changing into their church clothes and going to church Sunday morning, so probably not all the way off base. Um, there's rumors it was, quote, a sex church, which sounds kind of like... Uh, I'm into it. I mean, I'm not against it. I'm just saying it sounds a bit uh, sensationalist to me, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it's stretching the meaning a little bit. But there was a club and a church, like I was saying, on the same block, and then I think a lot of the religion and fun and life just kind of got intertwined a little more than normal. He also fathered a child with a teenage parishioner. Mm. Uh, so that's probably one of his worst transgressions. Uh, there's really no excuse. Yeah, that. we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, not All much, right, let's talk about Aretha now. Not much discourse to be had there. But yeah, time to be talking about who he, who he came to talk about. While living in Detroit after moving from Memphis, Aretha was being taken care of by her grandma, as well as gospel singer uh, Mahalia Jackson, like I was saying. Her father was very involved, but he was a busy man. You know, it was a patriarchal society like we still live in. You know, it's the women take care of the daughter. Uh, But her mother died when uh, Aretha was 12 years old, I believe. Uh, Her mother lived in Buffalo. Aretha would go to see her in the summers, I believe. She was 10, but close enough. Okay, yeah. She was young. She would go to see her her mom in the summer. And and, uh, that that was the extent of her relationship. But her mother... Her mother's death really had an effect on her. Uh, Aretha allegedly stopped talking for a period once her mother died, and her dad actually took her different places to sing to get her confidence back. And later in her life, Aretha said that that was another reason that she had such a close relationship with singing was because it got her out of a lot of dark times. Um, she spent so much time around the church that she learned how to play piano by ear. Uh, but her young life was not without uh, drama and being marred by tragedy as well. At age 12, she got pregnant uh, and named her son Clarence after her father, which is is crazy. So the, her father was some was supposed to be some guy that was in town or something. It came out in like her will in like 2019 that her father was actually that, that Clarence's father was actually somebody else. Uh, still nobody that we would know, but it's just interesting. And you know, I don't want to point fingers and and say that this is anybody's fault other than the person who perpetrated this and got her pregnant. But I do think there is some some connection between her father impregnating a teenage parishioner mm-hmm. and her getting pregnant at the age of twelve because that's the role model wasn't really there in terms of parenting and and consent in the age of consent. So that's kind of fucked up, honestly. And she also had another kid at the age of fourteen. So by the age of fourteen she was a single mother of two which is insane, even by those days' standards. It's not like it was several hundred years ago when the life expectancy was 40 years, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. this is the 1950s. She had two children at the age of 14, and her dad was a pastor. I mean, a man of God. That's, yeah. It's actually really interesting to me that she didn't get, like, blackballed or was not, like, a, a pariah in the community because of that, you know? And I think that speaks to the community sense that actually was around at the time. Uh, but... While this was all happening in her personal life, Aretha was still recording music, performing in churches around the country, and going to Northern High School in Detroit's North End, near Boston Edison. But she couldn't carry all the weight, so she dropped out of high school as a sophomore. And uh, her grandma uh, and her, I believe her older sister, started taking care of her kids at the time. 
Um, in terms of her career beginnings, Clara Ward, who was a fam- famous gospel singer, was one of the, of the many popular faces that became a constant in Aretha's life. Uh, Clara Ward was actually allegedly romantically involved with Aretha's father, C.L. Franklin, but either way, she was a role model in Aretha's life at the time, and she always preferred to t- view them as, as friends. Um, but because of Clara Ward's influence and her dad pushing her, Aretha actually got signed by a local record label when she was young called JVB Records. Uh, Joe Von Battle was the founder of JVB Records. It was a famous black bottom record store. That was really it. Uh, he just owned this store on Hastings Street. The and story of Joe Von Battle in that store is it, pretty amazing. It's incredible. Right? We'll, we'll tweet out a link uh, to that article. There's this whole website that's created by Joe Von Battle's daughter. Her name's Marsha, I believe. Marsha Music. Marsha Music is her website. And it's just this whole story. It's really... I don't know how you would describe it. It's not even specifically about Aretha. It's just about like, it's about Jovan Battle. And it's about, you know, it's just one of those, like we, our podcast name is Lost Souls of Detroit. And that's a perfect example of like yeah. a lost soul of the city. She is you know? like a lost soul of the city. You know what I'm saying? It, it's Jovan Battle was just this like stand up guy that everybody knew. John Lee Hooker would go to his record store when he'd come down Hastings Street. Everybody knew who he was. Um, yeah, he, highly recommend reading more about that. I mean, even the story of Joe Von Battle starting the shop up after quitting his jobs. Um, yeah, I mean, he he was working at like an auto plant or mm-hmm. something and then decided he was never going to work for somebody ever again, which yeah. is like a really common theme in Detroit. I he would work was- two eight-hour shifts in a row, um, come home exhausted, and decided that he didn't want to do that anymore. And yeah, I mean, without getting too off topic, the start of his store started with his personal record collection that he he found an old Jewish lady was retiring and selling her... Which also, by the way, so Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> selling her, her storefront for cheap. He bought the storefront and literally started selling his own record collection to start this thing for, I think, like a nickel a piece or something. Yeah. And turned it into a massively successful... I mean, this guy was absolutely fallen by the end yeah. of his, his career. That's, he, the story of Joe Battle is insane. Yeah, and the cool thing is, is like... you. Just like C.L. Franklin and New Bethel Baptist Church, Jovan Battle and his record shop followed the same like story. Like it's like a, a embodiment of the urban migration in Detroit. Like he started on Hastings Street when it was raised for I three seventy five. They moved. They were on Twelfth Street, I believe, actually, but the same neighborhood that New Bethel was on. And then he was on the, the record store was on Twelfth and Pennsylvania. And if you know anything about Twelfth Street in the nineteen sixties, you know that that's where the riots started in Detroit, the Twelfth mm-hmm. Street riots in nineteen sixty seven. And his store was burned down in the riots. Yeah, yeah, which is just like if you could not that that's necessarily a good thing, but he couldn't really have found himself more at the crossroads of Detroit history. Do at you that remember time. in that Martian Music article why the those um, race riots started? I think it's, she touched on it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's why. because honestly, we should probably do a whole episode on the race yeah. riots at some point, but it started based I mean, there was a lot of tension in the city as as a whole, but uh these like there was these guys hanging out on 12th Street at this blind pig, which is like a speakeasy type, not speakeasy, but after hours joint. Mm-hmm. And the cops came and tried to break it up. But instead of just breaking it up, they like shot and killed two of the two of the patrons. Oh wow. In there, and it just that was just the catalyst for all hell breaking loose. But yeah, so under JVB Records, Aretha recorded her first single on Wax as a 14-year-old in 1956 called Never Grow Old using recording equipment in the church, which, again, we'll post a link to this too, man. It's, it's like a really raw recording. It's not necessarily high quality, but you can literally hear like the commotion behind her in the church, people clapping, people murmurs. Like It's so raw and real and kind of just, it takes you right back to that point. It's awesome. And 
thinking of listening to that song, listening to her voice, knowing she was 14 years old at the time is just absurd. I mean, her voice was, it was mm-hmm. incredible. But yeah, I mean, this is why this is why Aretha dropped out, though. I mean, she had a clear talent. People loved her music, and she had a lot going on for her. So her grandmother and her sister Irma were taking care of her children. And uh, oh, sorry to sorry to interrupt. What I was what I was thinking of was the Detroit race riot of 1943. Uh, started, I don't know anything about. Yeah, that so one. this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier about how the projects were actually really the up and up neighborhood, and the Black Bottom wasn't. Um, and yeah, so she, what she, uh, in this Marsha music article, what she talks about is that the race riot of 1943 was instigated by intense competition over housing in the city. So actually white people trying to stop black people from moving into the projects. Uh, classic redlining. Yep, classic. Shout out to a previous, uh, episode, subject of our episode, Albert Kobo. No, it's not shout out to him or the episode. Yeah. Listen I'm just saying it, that he was a big redlining guy. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Big, 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 guy, big, big white flight guy. Yeah. Big white flight guy. <laughs> But yeah, no, uh, so Aretha started to tour uh, once she started recording. She started to go around the country. Uh, she started to spend some time with other artists. She spent a lot of time with Mavis Staples in Chicago. Uh, I guess their relationship was rocky. They kind of looked at each other as rivals, but it was kind of like a friendly rivalry, and it was more of like a nurturing each other's friendly competition. Um, and I, I, a side note, I would like to know that this time, like Mavis Staples had been involved with Bob Dylan, and I think it would be... Really interesting if like a friggin' 25-year-old Bob Dylan ran into like a 15-year-old Aretha. Cool. You never know. You never know. So this is this is where Aretha started to gain traction in the music industry. Uh, she was touring around. You got to remember at this time there wasn't really social media or anything. So word of mouth spread a lot slower. Quincy Jones actually saw her performing in her father's caravan, um, of course, because he's Quincy Jones. And he's also somebody who has found himself at the crossroads of history at every turn. Uh, Dinah Washington, who was watching Aretha with Quincy Jones, she actually told Quincy, allegedly, that Aretha was, quote, the next one, which she should probably feel vindicated after that. Yeah, and if you don't know about Dinah Washington, she is regarded as the most popular black recording artist of the 1950s. So, no joke. Yeah, in Aretha's voice, I mean, it was known and powerful. Like, when she was a teen, she went on tour with Martin Luther King when she was 16 years old. That's insane. I mean, once again, we want to talk about the kind of the luck in, in power that her dad had and brought on her. But the, the talent is, is unmatched. I mean, clearly she was a prodigy and deserved, you know, every bit of the fame she got. Absolutely. Yeah, Jesse Jackson said, When Dr. King was alive, several times she helped us make payroll. On one occasion, we took an 11-city tour with her as Aretha Franklin and Harry Belafonte, and they put gas in the vans. She did 11 concerts for free and hosted us at her home and did a fundraiser for my campaign. Aretha has always been a very socially conscious artist, an inspiration, not just an entertainer. And to me, that's, that speaks to what you were saying about her voice being powerful and everybody knowing that she was kind of the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, she went on tour with MLK who is this big known figure and she kept them afloat with yeah. her proceeds from her yeah. concerts. She, I mean, and that, I, I think that also just, I mean, that speaks to Detroit, man. I feel like that, that little quote from Jesse Jackson there is like the, I think something about the connection between Detroit and just the South civil rights movement. I mean, all of it is, it's pretty amazing that Detroit really was like a stop so it, far North, so far away from, you know, Selma or Montgomery, for example, yet such an integral part in the civil rights movement. Yeah, I think I mean, we've talked about it in so many episodes. Well, I mean, it's because, like, the the way the city went, right? Like, we had this revolution with the cars, and we had all this, these jobs mm-hmm. as soon as the Great Migration occurred in America. So when all these 
all these like black people that had new opportunities coming north, a very hefty portion of them came to Detroit because of the time that it was and all the opportunities that existed. Mm-hmm. Like if you talk to a lot of black fa- black families in this area, almost all of them will tell you like when their family moved from the south over the course of the last 60, 70 years. Like my grandma's from yep. from Tennessee, my grandma's from Alabama or something like that. So it's it's definitely has this kindred connection with the south, yep. which I think is really interesting especially in the black community. Yeah. And you see, I mean, exactly like for example, you know, we're drinking Dickel because Aretha is from Tennessee. It was just looking at Dinah Washington. She was born in Tuscaloosa, died in Detroit. I mean, it's 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 pretty Rosa amazing. Rosa Parks, born in the South, yep, died yep. in Detroit, moved here as late in her adulthood, really. Yeah. And Mike Illich paid her rent without telling anyone, didn't he? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah the, the good Illich. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not the one who made Hot and Ready's however much yeah, they cost now. Chris Illich, I have a lifelong vendetta against you. Me and Carlos Correa will never buy another Hot and Ready pizza. Yep. Don't blame that on inflation. <laughs> But but anyway, yeah, and I mean, she was like close with MLK. Their their families were very close, and I think it was two months before MLK was killed, he presented Aretha with a special award on behalf of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and actually at his funeral, Aretha Franklin sang, and even past his death, they remained close. You know, there's a lot of revisionist history that goes on about people's relationships and how close they were, but I feel like that speaks volumes of how close it. they actually were. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I trust like, that one. They like he gave her an award before he died. They were really they were really in that, you know? Mm-hmm. But back to her career, um Detroit always and still does has this like big small town vibe where it's a large city, but people just happen to know each other. People always know each other. Everybody knows each other. Um, and for example, even though Aretha was not a Motown artist, she knew a lot of people in Motown, which was also, uh, you may know was a burgeoning record label at the time. Uh, she knew Marvin Gaye because he was dating her older sister, which is a hilarious connection. Wow. Um, Barry Gordy actually offered to sign her to Tamla Records, which was the original subsidiary of of Motown in its early days. But CL Franklin believed, I mean, and he was rightly so at the time, he believed that the label wasn't established enough for Aretha. And we look back at that like it's crazy. What if Aretha was on Motown? How could it possibly be more powerful? And the answer to that is probably it would not have been. I mean, I, I would assume it would have been successful in its own way. But Aretha needed that creative freedom. And Barry Gordy was infamous for not giving any artist creative freedom. We talked until, about that. Until like the early episode. 70s when Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye went God mode. You know what I'm saying? But like. Before that, I mean, there was it was like an assembly line, and that was kind of his whole thing, which was cool in its own way and, and manufactured a, a shit ton of hits. But also, Aretha probably wouldn't have become probably the Aretha that we know today if she were to sign to Tamla. So mm-hmm. all in all, I think that was probably a good decision. Uh, but she went to New York to record and produce a demo, and it got her signed to Columbia Records in 1960. Her first single, Today I Sing the Blues, hit number 10 on the R&B charts, uh, her career soon kind of took form. She was making the R&B charts repeatedly in the early 1960s and during a performance at the Regal Theater in Chicago, WVON personality Purvis Spann announced that Aretha Franklin should be crowned the Queen of Soul, a title that would stick with her forever. Shout out Purvis Spann. And it's interesting because we like to look at this in the past and be like, oh wow, she hit the ground running. But really in the mid-60s, her career was was stagnant. She hadn't had any major hits uh, she was in her mid-20s, so she was starting to age a little bit as this young prodigy, and she was making 100000 a year by 1965, which is just under a million, about 900000 in today's money, which is a good amount. She had a great record deal, but that was mostly really from, from her live performances. Her record deal was not really making her a bunch of money. She was struggling commercially, and 
It's it. She actually, when her contract expired in November 1966 for Columbia, she actually owed them money. And it's just really interesting to see that she was already kind of a legend in these cult circles. People were crowning her the Queen of Soul, and she was basically not really appearing on the radio. Mm-hmm. So after her contract ended uh, with Columbia in 1966, uh, Jerry Wexler, a producer from Atlantic Records, brought Aretha on. And his whole thing was that he was going to encourage her gospel sensibilities. And it's cool because it sounds like he kind of understood and just got Aretha, like what she was all about, what her what her allure was. Um, and it, it was really formative in the definition of American soul music when this happened, right? Because he started to embrace her. And this is when she began to have like one of her most famous periods ever but it did kind of get off to a rocky start which i which you were telling me about earlier yeah it started a bit rough so when jerry wexler signed her to atlantic he wanted to bring her down to alabama to muscle shoals alabama where she would record at fame records um fame records was owned by rick hall and the guardian refers to him as a wannabe impresario so it seems like he had a, a pretty good studio going on. I think he had a few successful hits prior to Aretha and actually had no confidence in her at first. She sat down at the grand piano at Fame Studios and played Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, if you've heard of that one. Oh, yeah. And he said, quote, we were immune to that. What's this song all about? It sounded like an old waltz. It's got a waltz beat. You can't dance to it. It's not going to happen. He was not confident in Aretha uh, to be become a successful artist, but he really wanted Jerry Wexler's business, you know, Jerry Wexler from Atlanta Records, no joke, and he said, all right, we'll make it happen. We're going to do it anyway. So when they went to record, uh, Ted White, who was Aretha's manager and her husband at the time. Always a not toxic combination. Yep, yep. dipping the pen in the old company ink there. Uh, so <laughs> Ted White was known as a bit of a drinker, and I think they were drinking vodka while during the recording uh, session. He was getting a bit drunk and actually kept going up to Hall and asking him to fire different horn players because he thought they were making a pass at his wife. Too much dickle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But who knows? Um, I mean, it's possible they were. I think men were kind of kind of gross back then, but it could also be a drunk, jealous husband slash manager. But anyway, tensions got pretty high and actually uh, Jerry Wexler called the session off after only one song had been recorded. He said, we, we can't deal with this drama. This guy's firing <laughs> studio musicians <laughs> left and right. And Hall, I think the way he put it was that I wanted to have a little bit of vodka myself to, to calm my nerves. So then Hall ended up getting a bit drunk. And at this point, uh, the musicians had went back to the hotel. And Rick Hall said, you know what? I'm going to go over. I'm going to bring a bottle of vodka. We're going to drink it out and hash it out. And we're going to be friends. Jerry Wexler said, nope, please don't do that said he's going to anyway, and uh, Jerry Wexler was not happy about it. Um, I think they got they got in a bit of a verbal argument together, uh, Hall and Wexler, and then <laughs> Rick Hall went over to the hotel, and then next thing you know, he's getting in a fist fight. Yeah, it turns out when you're both drunk, trying to hash things out by words is not always the not always the way it happens. Yeah, exactly. A couple of uh, a couple of overly confident dudes ended up getting in fist fights together. So that was the end of the relationship there with between Aretha and Fame Records. But yeah, because of that, I mean, Rick Hall and Jerry Wexler, like their relationship was burned. He he completely fucked up, should not have gone over to the hotel. But either way, <laughs> uh, Wexler went and actually bought a building in Muscle Shoals, which is Rick Hall's turf. And That's cre- so petty. Yeah, and he, <laughs> I mean, he, and he went and created a damn empire down there. 
I mean, if you know anything about this 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 studio and Muscle Shoals, like if you know Muscle Shoals as a music fan, it's because of this. Yeah, exactly. I think it was called Muscle Shoals Studio. Yeah, isn't it? it's where I know it's where I know a bunch of people, but I know I think uh the the Stones recorded like a bunch of singles from Sticky Fingers, which is like the best album yeah. of all time. Yeah, there. they recorded Brown Sugar and Wild Horses, but then Keith Richards was banned from the U.S., so they couldn't finish recording <laughs> Sticky Fingers. <laughs> but That's, they got two bangers. I in mean, there. two of the best songs of, of all time. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, past that, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, Paul Simon, Willie Nelson, Elton John, the list goes on. I mean. Muscle Shoals Records was, I mean, just putting out bangers. Yeah. Right there on, on in Rick Hall's town. How do you think Rick Hall felt, dude? I think, I'm trying to remember exactly how the conversation went. I think it was um, when Rick and Jerry were fighting a little bit before he went over and, and got in a fight with with Ted. Uh, he was saying, like, I'm going to burn you. And, and then Rick Hall said, you can't burn me. You're too old. And he went oh. and burned the shit out of him. Maybe, 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 like I'll look at this in a positive light. Maybe, like Rick Hall was, like, just happy to be a part of history or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, anyways, a little bit more about Ted White. The, the yeah, drunk. I want to know about her husband manager that has yeah. not been talked about at all. What the hell's up with this guy? Yeah, so he was a promoter, a jukebox owner, and a wheeler dealer in Detroit real estate. There's not too much info out there, but uh, the Motown producer Harvey Fuqua called him a pimp. Okay, so this this is the type of guy he was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was abusive to Aretha. I think he would beat her publicly at Atlanta's Regency Hyatt House in 1967. It was reported. Yeah, I uh, I was reading about Ted White, and uh, it sounds like he may have been a garbage human being. Mm-hmm. But Aretha's best song, Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, is probably about him. I mean, it came out in that time period, so, you know, the... I don't know why I let you do these things to me. My friends keep telling me you ain't no good, but oh, they don't know that I'd leave you if I could. <laughs> that sounds a lot like an abusive Yikes. husband to me. Yikes. But then again, you know, I guess in Ted White's, the benefit of Ted White, Aretha seemed to have gone through quite a few toxic and abusive relationships at this time. So it's probably one of those things that like some of it's about Ted White, but it's probably just about like toxicity in her in her love life. Yeah, yeah. But it is kind of ironic nonetheless that that was the one song they put out at Fame Records that Ted White went and ruined the relationship. Like you think if they were there chilling like recording that he was sitting there like watching the, those lyrics be like put down like hmm, I, w- I wonder if that's about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe Whatever. I mean it would make sense. <laughs> it's a hit. He kind of he kind of <laughs> displaced or projected his anger at the horn players that were apparently making passes at his wife. And apparently the the horn players had no idea that this like they apparently they were just oblivious to any of the tension going on in the studio. <laughs> and they they literally he said we came back the next morning and there was a sign on the door saying we're done. Like they they didn't even know that they were fired until the next day. They were just asked to leave. And they came back and they were like, wow. And they just saw a sign that said no more recording. That leads me to believe that they actually were not hitting on her and that Ted White is just that's my, losing, that's my his, guess. losing his shit. Because that, that relationship did not last long, did it? The Aretha-Ted White relationship? No, nope. So they divorced in 68, which was just two years after the whole Fame Records altercation. And uh, yeah, Aretha's brother ended up taking over uh, managing her. Cecil? 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 I don't know. Whatever, uh, whatever became of this this fellow, <laughs> yeah. So then, in 1969, so just another year later, Sam Cooke's younger brother Charles Cook he visited Aretha in Detroit, and then Ted White ended up shooting him in the groin. I love that this story has no context. Do that, you know like, any more about? This? I, have, I have no Me idea. Uh, I, I don't even know what happened to I Ted White. I want to leave it at that. Yeah, I have no idea what happened to Ted White. I don't know. I, I think I may have read that he lived 
to old age, which judging by the very little I know about him, it's kind of surprising um, that nobody just had had enough of this guy. Yeah, he died in 2020. He was yeah. born in 31. Wow. So yeah, he lived a long life. of the Dude, and I, I read that Ted White was like portrayed by some, some actor in an Aretha movie and you know, like portrayed probably correctly, you know? Mm-hmm. Imagine how he felt, this like old man, old decrepit yeah, man right. watching this video about him abusing like the greatest soul singer of all time. But yeah, that that's a crazy story. And it's interesting how like these 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 moments in an artist's career you can look back on and be like, wow, it's just crazy mm-hmm. that they're this crossroads and this this conglomeration of events that happened at one time is gonna yeah. be like forever etched in, yeah. in American music lore. But despite her personal turmoil at this time, which seemingly never really ended for Aretha, 1967 to 1972 was arguably the most fruitful period she had as a pop musician. Uh, during this time, she had become easily the most successful singer in the nation. She recorded a cover of Otis Redding's song, Respect, at the Muscle Shoals sessions, actually, after the incident um, when things started to cool down again. And it became probably her most famous song ever, even though it's not her original song. Respect is like, that's forever an Aretha song. So much so uh, that Otis Redding, upon hearing uh, Aretha sing, that song on, on record, he goes, that little girl done took my song, <laughs> which she was right about. Otis, yeah. Otis is an all-time goat. He's one of my favorite artists of all time, um, but he couldn't have been more right there. Yeah, I mean, but that being said, those... he said it playfully. He wasn't mad, but it was more impressive. Yeah, I mean, and it's true, so right? He probably heard that and was like, I, I can't even, don't Get even stand a chance. Yeah. Yep. In 2021, Rolling Stone ranked Aretha's Respect the single greatest song of all time. Period. Bar none. That's kind of wild. You know, I can't really debate that. I mean, you can never debate sub- subjective music, but their, their reasoning and, and the context behind it makes sense. I mean, it became like a really important song, a protest song in a really pivotal era, both for civil rights and for feminism. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it was a really... It was kind of like iconic for feminism. At yeah. The time. You know, and like it's a song that had been out for years, so it's not like it was the lyrics, right? I mean, it was. That's why it became what it was, but it was, a, it was how Aretha... Aretha had this quality that people... If you look at interviews over and over and over again, Aretha had this quality that people said she just would take things and have this innate ability to just make it her own. And that's something that persisted throughout her entire life. And that's kind of what makes her special, at least in my opinion. Uh, But in terms of her career, in 1968, she came out with Lady Soul and Aretha Now, both of which became top sellers. And a lot of critics and writers think that Lady Soul might even be like, you know, her magnum opus. I'll say personally, there's uh, This Girl's In Love With You from 1970 is my personal favorite Aretha album. But Lady Soul is, is you know, it's, it's you can't dispute the greatness of that album. It included Chain of Fools, Ain't No Way, Think, uh, I Say a Little Prayer. Those were all songs that were that came out in this period, which is, which is really impressive. She earned a Grammy for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance. She had her first international tour. And she also had her first impersonator, I hear, which I, I, this is another one of those stories that I was like, I had no idea this even happened. The story's crazy. It might be one of the craziest, like, music stories I've actually ever yeah. heard. I don't even know if you can call it a music story. I, whatever it is, it's nuts. But yeah, so this lady, Vicki Jones. So apparently this, this lady, Vicki Jones, um, ended up ultimately getting in trouble for impersonating Aretha. But what happened was she, uh, she was a young, gospel singer um who would go and sing at nightclubs she would sing soul music at nightclubs kind of secretly from her church because uh, like i said earlier you know some uh, blues and soul music wasn't really respected by many churches so she, i think she actually sang at her church and then would go sing at nightclubs at night if i'm not mistaken 
but she sounded and looked a lot like Aretha Franklin and would actually do uh, covers. So she would sing sing covers of, of Aretha. And one night, maybe the guy was watching her for a while, there was a dude who would impersonate James Brown, who apparently was also really, really talented. Um, his name was Laval Hardy. And one time he hit her up, or he, he caught her after a show, and he's like, hey, I'll pay you $1,000 if you uh, come open for Aretha Franklin for six nights in Florida. And she couldn't say no to that. Who could? Yeah, I think, so Vicky Lee's story is actually really similar to um, Aretha. She had an abusive alcoholic husband who left her. She had children. She, there's like, there's really a lot of parallels between her story and Aretha Franklin's story, which is just kind of interesting. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, like you can debate the validity of what this guy said or whatever. But I mean, if somebody offers you a hefty sum of money to open for the most popular singer in America, like, and, and especially you, you if don't you, say no to that. you don't, you don't say no. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah. So he offered her a thousand bucks, come down to Florida, open for Aretha in six shows. For six shows. And they got down there, and it turns out Aretha Franklin was nowhere in Florida, and there was no plan that she was going to be performing in, in Florida. What Laval Hardy told her was that, nope, you're not going to be opening for Aretha Franklin. You're going to be Aretha Franklin. And he literally threatened her to impersonate Aretha Franklin. Not cover, not like a like an Elvis impersonator in Vegas, like literally pretend to be her and sell tickets as Aretha Franklin. So she got down there and... So this is, you know, this this is personal accounts, so who knows exactly how true it is. Uh, the more I read about it, the more I tend to really do side with Vicky on this, but he was threatening her. He was saying things like, I will dispose of your body in the bay, or I'll throw you in the bay. You know, it's going to be really hard for people to find the body out here. She was scared. She couldn't swim, which was a big, a big thing she said that she's like, I was, I was scared. I couldn't swim. Like if he threw me in the, in the water, I'd be done for he kept her locked in a small hotel room. He would feed her, I think, once or twice a day. He only fed her burgers. So it, it was like, like kidnapped her, essentially, and forced her, Definitely. and forced her to impersonate Aretha Franklin. The craziest part to me was what you were saying is that she, like, because if, I mean, in modern age, this wouldn't work, right? We got camera phones, people mm-hmm. zoom in, but like, apparently, at least according to like accounts, right? Like, people like thought it was her. Like, people were like, yeah, that's yeah. her. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> That's a crazy thing in which, I mean, it's pretty incredible. Like she was phenomenal. Like all the accounts talk about her. I can't say as talented, but she tricked multiple audiences into believing she was Aretha Franklin. Apparently audiences were a little bit skeptical. And as soon as she would open her mouth and start singing, they would all scream. That's her. That's Aretha. They were completely convinced. I mean... Which is pretty incredible that this woman had so much skill. I mean, yeah, was, we're talking about like one of the greatest singular voices of all time yeah. here. And yeah. she was just, boom, yeah. money. Under, under legitimate wrongful imprisonment. But she got, they got away with a few shows. Um, I think one of the big things that raised some skepticism was that Lavelle, Hart, or Lavelle, excuse me, Lavelle Hardy was asking venues for like $7,000 for Aretha to perform, kind of pretending to be her manager. But typically she would get like $20,000 to perform. So they were like, this is kind of weird. But they still all believed it. But finally, I mean, it's Aretha Franklin in the late 60s. Like, she's one of the most powerful artists. So, of course, her team found out that this was happening. Right. I mean, she was signed to like Columbia Records yeah. or Atlantic at this time. Yeah. Like, she's like, it's not like they, she had some chumps working for her. Yeah, exactly. So they found out, they called the cops. And I believe the cops down there in Florida or whoever ended up setting it up, actually sent in um, some dudes who were like private investigators. They weren't even deputized. They were just some tough 
ass dudes who were going to go like arrest him. I don't really know how that worked. I didn't look too much into it, but they weren't real cops. Um, they get down there, they arrest Lavelle and Vicky, um, and basically let her go right away. I mean, she told her story. They found no reason not to believe her that she was being held against her will by Lavelle. Actually, uh, one of the lawyers, I believe it was a lawyer, maybe a prosecutor, I remember, I think it was a prosecutor, actually had her sing to be like, prove to me that you sound this much like Aretha. She opened her mouth and he said, yep. Yeah. This this is pretty amazing. The the crazy part too is that like she basically like I mean people like when she got caught right like people like the at least the lawyer or the whoever like they believed her right like after mm-hmm. that they were like okay like yep this is a fucked up situation yeah, yeah they believed her pretty much right away and let her go and arrested Lavelle that's but crazy one during all this one of the white lawyers from Florida who I think was also like an entrepreneur he was a s- successful dude actually gave Vicky Lee a contract and paid her in advance to basically work like he was going to be her manager and he paid her to be her manager before she even came back from Florida and that paid for her bus ticket home. Yeah. Cause mind you, this whole time she was being held away from her four sons. Yeah. Like she was a single mother. I mean, truly kidnapped. Yeah. Like, like genuinely. Like all signs point to the fact that this is not something she wanted to do, but regardless, she comes back. Her story is incredibly um, popular. Uh, I believe it was Jet Magazine, which was one of the big magazines yeah, then. Yeah, she was on the cover. Yeah, she. some of the stories talk about how she used to read Jet Magazine and see Aretha Franklin on the cover and be like, this is, this is, you know, this is amazing. And then she ended up being on the cover of Jet Magazine. She got so popular from the story. And after, I think, like, very soon afterwards, even, like, Duke Ellington found out about the story. During one of his shows, he brought her on stage... He told the entire crowd her story. He kissed her on the cheek for for cameras, and I believe that was the picture on the cover of Jet. Was her and Duke Ellington together? That's she, wild. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a it's a really happy story because she had all this shit happen. She got super popular. She became so famous and successful, like incredibly successful monetarily and you know popular. She actually ended up having people impersonating her. Ha! I'm not kidding you. Soul singerception. Amazing. Right. And but the the issue was yeah. So I mean, she became super popular, Vicky Lee, but actually sent her kids to go back and live with her dad, who was known to be alcoholic and abusive because she was so busy on the road. That after a while, she said, "Nope, I I can't do this. It's not worth giving up my kids." And quit music, got her kids back, and lived a happy life. Well, I mean, at this end, it's still a happy story, right? Because I don't want to speak for her or her music, and I haven't listened to it or her voice, but there's a really big chance that that record deal in that advance came from the news media circus and the fact that, like, holy shit, she has this amazing voice. Like, the probably the, the Aretha fatigue price set in, right? Mm-hmm. After a couple of years, it was yeah. like, okay, like, well... Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is this dude paid her in advance to be her manager. Yeah. That was that was what this dude paid her for. Like while she was still, he was a lawyer, so she was still going through all the shit to get out of Florida, and he paid her. I think I don't remember exactly, but I think he ended up turning out to be like some con artist, wannabe entrepreneur who had a bunch of failed things. But <laughs> either way, still it was more more real than being kidnapped yeah. under the pretense yeah. of opening for Aretha. But we talk about Aretha being a quote unquote nepotism baby, and kind of how all of these people surrounding her brought her to the fame. And then a woman like Vicky Lee, who was singing in nightclubs, hiding from her church because she didn't want to get in trouble for singing the devil's music, ends up getting extremely popular off of purely her skill. Yeah. So 
amazing story. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy story. Yeah. And and during this time, I mean, Aretha, like we're saying, like 1967 to 72, that was like her her creative, uh, like amazing creative period, right? Like, yeah, that was. I mean, yeah, I would say 67 to 72 by far Aretha's most amazing five years of her career. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and like what we're saying, Lady Soul, Aretha now, and then in 1970, she released my personal favorite, which is This Girl's in Love with You. And she also released uh, several other albums that year, Spirit in the Dark, uh, the Amazing Grace gospel album. She did a gospel album. And Young, Gifted, and Black. Uh, she was the first R&B performer ever to headline the Fillmore West, which is like famous for being like the scene for West Coast music back then. It's where like the Allman Brothers got famous, where the Grateful Dead got famous, blah, blah, blah. The Bill Graham bands. Uh, but she linked up with Quincy Jones um, after another, after this run that we just talked about of great albums to create the album Hey Now Hey in 1973, which is hilarious because, like, of course, right, Quincy Jones just being at Crossroads in history again. He's everywhere. Yep. Uh, but the lead single was Angel, which was a top 20 uh, song on the Billboard charts, a really famous Aretha song. But the album flopped. It was the first Atlantic record from Aretha to ever miss the top 25. Wow. Which is interesting because I went back, I listened to the album, and, and I mean, it was really in the same vein, right, of all these classics. Like, I don't know if there was just fatigue setting in about her career or the, the marketing push behind it wasn't correct or what, but I mean, it's a great album, and it's not like Quincy Jones can't put an album together, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, is Thriller anybody, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's not like uh, it was like a, a failure on that part. So that was interesting. But, I mean, it was kind of a trend, right? By 1975, Aretha's music was no longer selling too well. Uh, she worked on the soundtrack to the film Sparkle with Curtis Mayfield in 1976 after Jerry Wexler left Atlantic Records for Warner Bros. And it marked uh, Franklin's final top 40 hit of the 70s with Something He Can Feel. And then she had four straight albums that just tanked. And then her contract ended with Atlantic. And she was kind of, you know... A lost soul of her own at that point, yep. if you will. So the yeah, lost soul of soul. So the the yeah, the mid seventies to eighties weren't weren't too nice to her, huh? No, uh, she ended up siding with Arista in nineteen eighty because this guy that you might have heard of named Clive Davis uh, told her that he could revitalize her career, and she believed that you know if anybody can set me on track again, it's it's Clive Davis, and she was right. I mean, her first three albums at Arista performed much better than her last four at Atlantic. 1982's Jump To It from the album of the same name marked her first top 40 single since her uh, collaboration song with Curtis Mayfield. Um, yeah, I think Clive Davis was kind of the man of the early 80s. Clive Davis was the... It was like, like Clive, Clive Davis is the only person that can like rival Quincy Jones in terms of yeah. music executive dominance. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she, her first three albums performed really well. She experienced what you would maybe call a career renaissance. I mean, you, I don't know. It was less than 30 years into her career. So I don't know if you want to call it a renaissance. But she, her album, Who's Zoom and Who, in 1985 was her first album with Arista to go platinum. Uh, in 1987, she released another gospel album. And she recorded it actually at New Bethel, uh, which is really cool. It was in honor of her father. It was called One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. But around that time was when her reign of radio hits ended. Uh, she had a few songs throughout the 90s appear on the charts. 1993's A Deeper Love, 1994's Willing to Forgive, and 1998's A Rose is Still a Rose. And those were the last songs that she had ever on the charts. But at this point, she was kind of uh, you know leaning more into just icon status. you know. Yeah, I mean, at that point, she was the icon, right? I mean, I think one of the most memorable Aretha moments of this period was the 98 Grammy Awards. 
She was originally supposed to perform in honor of the Blues Brothers movie, which she was in. Yeah, which is crazy, which I didn't know. But yeah, I guess she was supposed Me to neither. do like some some performance in honor of Belushi or something um, about Blues Brothers. But during the Grammys, uh, this opera tenor Luciano Pavarotti, who was supposed to perform an aria called Nessu Dorma, he f- fell ill. He was sick. So the producers being desperate to fill the spot... And Aretha, who is, a, of course, a friend of the opera tenor, Luciano Pavarotti. She was pretty familiar with the song, and she was like, ah, I can sing it in the tenor range. And ended up singing an opera aria when she was supposed to perform a Blues Brothers song. You know, just a little, little switcheroo. A little switcheroo. And over a billion people saw the performance live, and she received an immediate standing ovation. This was like an iconic Aretha Franklin performance. Just out of nowhere, performing opera. Pretty incredible. And she ended up performing it live for several years in front of Pope Francis, uh, which is pretty amazing, at the World Meeting of the Families in Philadelphia in 2015. It's pretty damn cool. Yeah, and I, and I think that's like going to, to what we were saying earlier about uh, her ability to, to take anything and make it her own, right? Like that, that performance was so so famous, like you said, that she went and performed it elsewhere. Like it, it was already so the Pope in front of the Pope, like you know. And it's just she just has this innate ability. Everything she takes, she she makes it, she makes it her own. And you know, like it's it's by the '90s, like we're saying, Aretha was already certified, man. Like she was already a legend. Um, and this was just her. You mean like oh, okay, I'll do this performance, and then just absolutely crushing it. Um, I mean, and that's that's like you know at this point. We're we're in our mid twenties. We were alive at this point, you know. Like this was this was late in her career, and I, I don't know about you, but like the first memory that I have of Aretha, like glaring memory, other than just you know the the vague idea that I grew up on her music, that her music was always being played when I was growing up and stuff, was that she did the national anthem at the 06 Super Bowl in Detroit, and I was really, I mean, I'm a big sports fan, so it was really seminal to me. Like I went to all this stuff downtown, you know, as like a ten year old, like oh my or nine year old, like oh my gosh. Super Bowl is here, but I'll never forget like just watching her do the the national anthem. Like that's Detroit, a Detroit mm-hmm. singer doing a song in Detroit. Like I understood the gravi- the gravitas of the yep. of the moment. You know what I'm saying? So that's like the first. I don't know if that's like a big part of the Aretha lore, but I just kind of wanted to say that's like my my first like vivid memory I have of of Aretha. But mm-hmm. I mean, she was still making music um, after her contract expired with Arista. She spent time at multiple labels like DMI Records, RCA, just a few different ones over the years. But her later years are honestly mostly marked by public appearances. Um, she performed at a lot of really interesting places, but not limited to Dancing with the Stars, uh, The Late Show with David Letterman. She performed at Obama's inauguration. Uh, I mean, just a lot of, you know, she was she was the who's who of American music at that time. Yeah, she was just the staple. Yeah. Like, you want somebody with a powerful voice that's going to fucking rock your socks off? <laughs> like. Aretha. Aretha. Yep. Uh, I mean, she performed as long as she was healthy. In 2017, she canceled some concerts um, and then did a show outdoors at Shane Park in Detroit, which is now titled the Aretha Franklin Amphitheater, by the way. Uh, But she did a show at Shane Park in the summer in 2017 and asked audiences to keep me in your prayers. Um, And that was kind of when the world, I think, started to realize, like, she wasn't in a great place with her health. Um, Yeah, it got kind of sad around that part. I mean, she didn't really disclose what her diagnosis was, but she started canceling shows in 2013. Yeah. A few shows here and there. She would have surgeries. She had surgeries that 
you know, she would dramatically lose weight. Yeah, you would see like in these these performances, if you watch videos, she was like super, super thin, which like, you know, it's been really well documented throughout her career and her life that she struggled with her weight and being a heavier. So seeing her so gaunt and skinny was really jarring. But her, her final public performance was uh, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City uh, during Elton John's 25th anniversary gala for the Elton John AIDS Foundation in November of 2017. That was the last performance she ever gave. And it was less than a year before she died. Less than a year before she died. She passed away from, at least it was reported that it was symptoms of pancreatic cancer in August 2018, age 76. Uh, at this point, she was living at the Riverfront Towers um, off Jefferson in Detroit. So not that it's cool that she died, but it's interesting that like she, you know, full circle, right? Like she was, she was started her career in Detroit. When all for, the most of her, for the most of her late life, she lived in a mansion in Bloomfield Hills. Yeah, yeah. So, like, she actually, like, she moved to New York City to start her career. Um, so, you know, to get that deal with Columbia. And then she moved to L.A. in the mid-70s when she was working, um, you know, with Curtis Mayfield and doing other movie soundtracks and stuff. But in 1982, after, three years after her dad was shot, like we were talking about, she moved back to Bloomfield Hills and was taking care of her comatose father, but lived the rest of her life in the Detroit area. I mean, she spent time in Bloomfield Hills. Um, she owned a house in nearby where we are right now in the Palmer Woods neighborhood. Um, she owned a house. She owned her childhood home on LaSalle Street. It's pretty cool. But later in her life, uh, she 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 lived at the Riverfront Towers, the apartment in Detroit. Um, but actually, there's a cool story that I read, honestly, that like she... She owned this house, right, on LaSalle Street. And in recent years, as Detroit's kind of, you know... A phoenix rising from the ashes. LaSalle Gardens, that little neighborhood right there, has become like really, really cool again. It's really nice. There's a park in the middle that I believe is actually named after C.L. Franklin. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think the park in the Probably. middle LaSalle Gardens is named for him. But the she owned the house but wasn't doing anything with it. The house was like the lone house on the block that was like falling into disrepair. And this couple uh, wanted to buy it, but there was some like there there was some there was some couple that wanted to purchase the house. They saw that it was like the last blighted home on the block and it was in like Aretha's in the deed of the house or in her will or something. I mean, she was still alive at this point. It was like 20, 2017. Um, so towards the end of her life, but she, she, there was something that was like, I will own this house till I die basically. And the family like contacted her, basically got in touch with her and was like, Hey, you haven't done anything with this house in 30 years. Like it's, it's falling apart. We'd love to make it a home and like make it ours. And she sold it to them. She she like signed the deed over to them, and they own the house. And since then, it's been remodeled. I don't know if they still live there, but it's been remodeled. It's nice. It's that's amazing. It's really cool. And like, dude, imagine just living in a house that Aretha grew up in, like living, breathing history, man. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of her personal life, we talked about her relationships. We talked about uh, things that happened throughout her life. But overall, she had four sons. The two that we mentioned uh, that she had by the age of 14, but she also had a son with Ted White, her road manager and husband and uh, shooter of Sam Cooke's younger brother. Right in the groin. Right in the groin. In 1964, and she had a son with her road manager, Ken Cunningham, uh, in 1970. So she had four kids. Um, she's kind of infamously private, uh, Aretha. Like, not many people know anything about her, like, later in her life or her kids very much. I mean, I, I guess it's rumored that Clarence, her first son has like a severe learning disability or something. Um, but really, it's they're pretty private people. But at the end of the day, man, uh, she's one of the most, if not the single most famous American female singer ever. Um, music is subjective, but 
she's the goat. I mean, she's one of the best voices yep. ever. I, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has heard Respect or heard quite a bit of Aretha. But man, if you haven't, like you, you go listen to Aretha Franklin. Like right, what are you doing? right now. Why are you, are you listening to fucking us? Yeah, man? stop and listening not, to me. Go listen to Aretha. Yeah, I mean she's she's the best as an avowed. I mean we we do stuff all about people from Michigan or people from Detroit on this podcast, but. People who know me personally know that, like, I am like a absolute fiend, an absolute fiend for music. And Aretha, I mean, that's the stuff, man. That's the stuff. Like, she's she's turned gospel into something palatable and poppy for America in a time that the only real majorly famous black acts were mostly associated with Motown or jazz. Or, I mean, she she broke an entirely new mold. And it's not a lot of time that you find a critical consensus as clear as this one, right? Like, I don't think I've ever heard any one dissenting opinion on Aretha. Like, have you ever heard anybody be like, well, guys, well, actually, she's not that great. No, like, nobody, ever. Like, the undisputed, one of the undisputed ghosts. That's Rick Hall. Oh, yeah, that guy, that guy sucks. (laughs) I feel like he may have a bias or something. Yeah, right. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, she, she is really, honestly, like, very formative for me, right? Like, I grew up, I grew up on a lot of rock and roll, and I grew up on a lot of, you know, my mom listened to, like, 80s. The Cure. The Cure. Duran Duran, Depeche Mode. But uh, Aretha was like, you you just always know, right? Like, you, you, I listened to Aretha as a kid and was blown away from the first. And, you know, you kind of take her for granted sometimes. I, Aretha's been, like, a common musical influence in my life for the past 20 years or whatever. But, like, she... This was like the first time doing this podcast where I, like, I sat back and I was just like, man, like she really, yeah. she really had it. Whatever that was, like the charisma, the raw power, the, the range, the feeling, you know, like I, I've been watching a lot of movies lately and I've realized that plot doesn't really matter to me in a movie anymore as long as the feeling is there and the exploration of some theme is there, whatever that is. And that's kind of how I look at Aretha's music, right? Like it's all feeling like. These old recordings of her in the New Bethel Baptist Church are terrible. Like the songs aren't bad, but like the recording quality yeah. is awful. Like it's like it's like somebody had this like thirty cent, or I don't know, freaking cost, but this cheap ass mic that they just like put in front of her face, you know, and like all right, play, and it's you hear the people clapping in the background, you hear the murmurs, you hear the whoops and the hollers, and like mm-hmm. she's just fucking belting this amazing music. The feel has always been there. And like I, 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 I like to think of like I'm a guy, a guy with pretty good music taste, and you never know unless you're there. But I don't know how you could have been in those situations, seeing young, young Aretha, and not be like, she's one of them yeah, ones. That's, yeah, that's you know, she, yeah, that's her. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, one of my uh, one of my favorite parts about when we record this podcast is really talking about the legacy and kind of digging deep and looking at the nuance, this and that. If you've noticed so far, this episode has been kind of just like a name-dropping fest. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what happens, right? Like, we, we do episodes about garbage human beings like Kobo or kind of... Or people that are, like you're saying, very nuanced, like mm-hmm. Kwame. Like, obviously yeah, not Kwame, a great dude, but... Cadillac. Right, all these people that have good and bad. And, mm-hmm. like, it feels kind of good to do an episode about somebody that's just, like... Un, like, just like good. You can't argue against the fact that they're fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the I think her legacy speaks for itself. I don't think we need to di- dissect that too much. I think the the whole episode, like I said, it's it's just been a name dropping fest, and that's not 
you know, that's that's not to just share as many names and facts as we can. That's to show that the amount of connections and kind of points in Aretha's career to where she has been either influenced by or a direct influence to some of the other most famous musicians in American history just goes to show us she's she's like the center point. She really is the center point of Detroit R&B. She's the queen of soul. She's inspired impersonators. She has been recorded and talked about by the top names ever. And and it's it they really I mean it's it's really really special to be able to dig into someone like this as history because we all know Aretha Franklin. We all know respect. We we know her music, but to look and and you know to see the the human that lived the life of Aretha Franklin, not just the legacy and the kind of the the soul, if you will, of Aretha Franklin is it's it's kind of special and it's 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 exciting to see that someone so famous and kind of you know not enigmatic, but just it's 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 a name and it, it's a song on Spotify. It's not the human being when you talk about her and you see. She went through abusive relationships. She had, you know, addiction issues or or had family members with addiction issues. She had a father who was in a coma for five years. She moved between cities. She had two children by 14 years old. I mean, this is a human being. Absolutely, you know, and like it's this thing where I think we might look at her through a certain lens. Like for me, I, I think I, I inflate the importance of a lot of Detroit people somehow, even though they're already very important because like I look at it through the lens, like how much they mean to me. Because I'm from here and I feel like a kinship with here. But when you go back through and you read this stuff about Aretha, you're like, yeah, uh, I'm not biased about Aretha, right? Like she's like, she's just, it's not just people that are born and raised in Detroit that think she's the goat. Like it's it's just yep. the world. Like the world just kind of has accepted this universal truth that she is one of the greatest. And it's so cool to be able to say that like she's from Detroit yep. and she spent the majority of her life here. Her dad was a pillar of the community here. Her family still is in the area. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, how much more Detroit can you? She could have left us in the dust so long ago. Yep. And yeah, I really don't think there's that any more to add. I'm I'm thankful we did this one. It Me was, too. It wasn't as it wasn't as contentious or yeah. nuanced as some of the other ones. But it, like I said, I think that it's it's pretty amazing to actually explore the life of someone who's nothing more than a legendary name. To be honest, like you hear the name and the music, and you're impacted, but. To look into the life and see the good and bad is is exciting. So yeah, and and, and for, for the listeners out there, man, if if like you are interested in Aretha, like there are so many good books and documentaries about her that yeah, we scratched the surface. We just scratched the surface. There's that goes so deep. I mean, we're gonna tweet out the picture of of C. L. Franklin and M. L. K. It's and a the, great picture. And the article, it's a great picture. And the article about Jovan Battle Records and like the stuff that kind of just, you know, were very formative parts of her life. But yeah, check don't, out Marsha Music. Check out Jovan Battle. Yeah, man. But don't take our word for it. Just go. Like go and explore because there is so much to learn and so much music to listen to. Like you could spend like the next few weeks of your life deep in an Aretha rabbit hole and I promise you you will not regret it. Amazing. All right, man. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. All right, see you next time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Lost Souls of Detroit, and our Twitter is Souls Detroit. Now, don't forget to subscribe to us on your preferred streaming platform, and if you are using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. As a growing podcast, this helps us tremendously and will allow us to keep it going. 
Don't be afraid to hit us up on social media with requests on a soul you want us to discuss or a spirit you recommend that we drink. <laughs>